0: We're in John chapter 12. We're working through it verse by verse, and we come to verse 27 this morning, and Jesus says, "This now is my soul troubled." And this word for troubled here, in different translations, can be translated as "now my soul is in is in turmoil," or "my soul is disturbed." And what we can note from the text is that is that Jesus is overwhelmed with emotion and it speaks to us gives us a picture of his humanity and exactly how he processed through that troubled soul that soul that was in turmoil that soul that was in that was disturbed and before we get to that it begs the question like why like Jesus, why are you have a troubled heart? Why is your soul in turmoil? And the answer to our question is really, we find it in the, in the context of the text. And that's a good illustration that when we have a question about a specific verse, it's always helpful just to go a little bit before or a little bit afterwards because very often... The text will answer our questions when we come across a verse of Scripture that might be hard to understand. And in this case, the question is answered, why is your soul troubled, Jesus? Is that there were these Greeks that were traveling, and they traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. They, these Greeks are Gentiles, is another word to describe them is that they were God-fearers and they were seeking for the one true God and they found out about the Lord, the God of Israel. And so they traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and we know that there was a place for them to worship there. It was the court of the Gentiles. And that was one of Jesus' favorite places to teach and to really stir up uh, stir up controversy with the religious leaders of his days. And so the Jews came and they heard what Jesus was teaching and the authority that he taught with, and they said, we have to talk to him. We have to talk to Jesus. And so they saw one of their, you know, one of their kinsmen and said to Philip, Philip, we, we want to talk with Jesus. And what John does in the economy of his word choices John tells us nothing about the dialogue between Jesus and the Greeks, but he does respond in an amazing fashion, and that's in chapter 12 too. It answers the question, why, is Jesus, why does he have a troubled heart? And when a verse of Scripture raises a question, we go to the context, and very often we find the answer. And in this case, we do. So if we looked at John chapter 12, verse 24, or verse 23, it says, Jesus answered the Greeks, and he said this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And John uses this word glorified in a very unique sense. Like when we think of something being glorified, in my mind, I think of majesty, or I think of power or I think of prominence, or I think of position. When John uses the word for glorified, over and over again, and we're going to see this in the context, over and over again, the word for glorified or the usage in John has to do with this, a humble, a lowly service that's connected with the cross. And so when John and Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that is always linked to the cross of Christ where out of humble service, Jesus shows us how to live a life that glorifies God and honors God. And we live a life that honors God or glorifies God as we submit, as we have a uh, a heart to submit to God's work, of being a servant to the people around us. And so Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And what Jesus' heart is in turmoil, disturbed, troubled, is that the simple reality is in the timeline of redemption. His horrific and sacrificial and atoning death on the cross is coming, and we have a picture of his humanity. That he sees the cross coming, but he's not afraid. And when we look at that dynamic in Christ's life, it helps us to understand how how should we respond when our life is in turmoil. What should we do? Where should we go? When, When our whole world has been rocked and our whole world has been turned upside down and our heart is troubled, where do we go with things like that? And all of our lives will be at that juncture at some point in time. And what we see Jesus is, he's not afraid. And what he does is he shows us where to bring the turmoil and where to bring a troubled heart. Come back to the text with me. We're in John chapter 12 and we're in verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? And what Jesus models for us is that when our heart is troubled and the difficulties of life overwhelm us and we feel like we're swamped by life, that we have a heavenly father who loves us and cares for us and is waiting to hear our prayer. Amen. And then Jesus says this, he prays to his father, Father, save me from this hour. And we can harmonize the gospel's accounts about Gethsemane because this is his Gethsemane experience in John. We can harmonize the accounts and learn more in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22. But John Records, Father, save me from this hour. And then Jesus has no fear. He's resolute. He's committed. And he prays, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we see in that 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 is the great point of of transformation in our life where we take lemons and spiritually make them lemonade, where we take the difficult things in life and we process them in a way that ends up transforming our heart and transforming our life, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. In other words, through submission and humble service, the name of the Father would be glorified. And then we see the heart of the Father. There's that response that we see in verse 28. It says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again through the cross of Christ. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. <laughs> Others said an angel has spoken to him, and then Jesus brings a clarifying statement and said, "The voice has come for your sake, not mine." Like why? Why didn't Why didn't they hear the voice? Why do some say, "Oh, it's an angel speaking," and another another group says, "Oh, it just thundered." I mean, wasn't it it clear? Jesus said it was clear. And in the midst of turmoil in life, there is a place where if we step towards God, like Jesus did, towards the Father, stepping into the situation, believing that God is good and he'll answer our prayer, that step of faith brings forth the blessing and the direction and the peace and the presence of God. But the crowd illustrates the opposite. They they weren't having anything to do with what is this? This suffering. What is this talking about glory? We want, we want this. And unbelief and stepping back from trusting in the Lord leads to a spiritual dullness of hearing and a spiritual dullness of heart. And what Jesus models in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his troubled heart, he steps towards the Father, and the voice of the Father speaks and affirms and comforts the son, not that he needed it, but he displays, the father displays his nature and character to those all around, yet they don't quite get it. Come back to the text with me. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In verse 31 and 32, And verse 33, Jesus unpackages for the people the central nature of the cross in bringing Jesus, bringing humble service through the cross, and how that glorifies the Father. See, the central place of the cross in Christianity is the key that unlocks all that we have in redemption. For example, we could look at uh, 2 Corinthians. Come there with me for a minute. The central place of the cross in Christianity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin. So the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes your sin and my sin, and he pays the penalty for that sin, so we don't have to pay that penalty, so that we could receive a gift, which is the forgiveness of sins and his righteousness. And all of Christianity is focused on Jesus glorifying the Father through the cross. And all of our transformation and spiritual growth comes from this one understanding that Jesus took all of our sin to the cross. And as we respond, and he's going to say, as I'm lifting up, I'll draw all men to himself, and we'll clarify that. But as Jesus went to the cross, he draws men and women and children who respond to that grace and faith. And when we do, a transaction happens. God sees all that Jesus did and he credits it to our account and pronounces us not guilty and his justice is satisfied. So when we look at these three verses, it's the, these three verses are, are so deep in our own spiritual state. They speak of Jesus' humble service and how and what transaction happened at the cross. When we look at verse 31, in the first part, we can say, God is glorified at the cross because judgment and justice is executed at the cross over a sinful world. And so God is holy and God is just and sin must be paid for and what Christ did on the cross was take all the sin both past, present and future of mankind and he took it to the cross and he paid the price and he and he satisfied the wrath of God, and all of us that respond to that grace, that call, by faith, our sins are forgiven. And God looks at our position not as in the lineage of the first Adam, but looks at it in the lineage of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and sees us as pure and undefiled, holy, Inacceptable in his sight. Why is the cross so important? Without the cross, there's no satisfaction for the wrath of God. Without the cross, there is no justice with the cross. There is satisfaction for sin. God's justice for holiness is satisfied. And as we step into the cross, God looks at us not in our sinful state, but he looks at us and said, that's my boy, that's my girl, that's my child, that's the one that my son cleansed and made clean. The implications of this are profound for us because we no longer have to walk in, in guilt, we no longer have to walk in shame because what the law couldn't do, Jesus did at the cross, cleansing us. And so there's good diagnostic questions here for our hearts in turmoil and in trouble. We go, to a, we go to a good God who forgives us, cleanses us, sets us free. Verse 31a, God is glorified at the cross as judgment and justice is executed on a sinful world. Second thing that we can see, God is glorified at the cross in in verse 31b. God is glorified at the cross because Satan is overthrown and Satan is defeated. And in all of our lives, Satan wants to come and tell us that is not true. In all of our lives, Satan wants to come and say, oh, no, you can't be set free. Oh, no, you can't have victory over sin. Oh, no, that sin is too much. Oh no, you are not worthy. And Jesus defeated that adversary and as Jesus says and describes Satan himself, he is the father of all lies. Why is the cross so important? The cross is important that you know that God's justice has been done. The cross is important that you are no longer under the bondage of the devil himself, but God has brought victory through the work of Christ. Right. Last couple of verses there, 31 and 32 and 33. God is glorified at the cross because each person is judged or saved by the cross. Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me if I am lifted up. And he says this, come to the text with me, in verse 31, now is the judgment of the world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, speaking of, the, of his victory over Satan, verse 32, and, I, and when I am lifted up from the earth, like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's why when we preach the cross of Christ, it draws and it propels. It gathers and it pushes away. Because when we come to the cross, what happens is the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and says, come and receive forgiveness. Come and be set free. Come and experience eternal life. Come, I have paid the the price for your sins. And there's a place where that where grace hits the heart and requires a step of faith. And when that faith is exercised, when that grace is acted upon, then that cross saves. And when that grace is rejected, that cross judges. Now there's always the question that, That many ask, well, it says, is it all men? Does it imply that uh, as a universalist type of theology that ultimately all are saved? Not at all. You just need to read the context of it because all through John, there's two classifications of people. There's the saved and there's the unsaved. There's the believer, and then there's the unbeliever. And what the cross does is separates the two. And those that come and receive the work of the cross in their heart, they no longer live their life from guilt and shame, but they live their life from a place of being forgiven and accepted and loved by God. That's why I can stand before you as an imperfect person, No amens to that. We all know I am. An imperfect person, but completely confident in a simple truth that Paul expresses in Galatians 2.20. He says this. If you know it, you can say it with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I live now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross brings that confidence to our relationship with God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so let's finish up our little text here. This morning we look at verses 34 and 36 and then we'll come back the next time to deal with the rest of the chapter. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. There's an interesting dynamic here, our dilemma, is we just don't know what they're talking about. The law is about the first five books, right? Pentateuch, the first five books. But there's no reference like this. There's no reference from the first five books like uh, that pertain to this. Where did they get it from? I don't know. And Jesus' response to them is what? In the midst of their questioning, in the midst of their confusion, in in the midst of they heard something from the rabbi or in the temple or somewhere, there's confusion, which, you know, life brings you to that place at times. Sometimes you're confused. You just don't know the answers. Sometimes you think you know your Bible, but you don't know your Bible. And sometimes you think you remember the verse, but it's not there, and you can't find it. But Jesus does something very interesting. He doesn't answer their question. And what does he do? He invites them, in the midst of their questions, he invites them to exercise what? Faith. Here we go. Belief. Trust in him. He says, hey, the light's here. I'm here. I'm not going to be here much longer. And he's not. He's going to end his public ministry here. And he says, says, don't let your questions keep you from me. Don't let the turmoil in your heart keep you from me. Step towards me. And I'll bring you. Direction, I'll bring you peace. I'll show you the way out of the turmoil and the difficulties and the questions that you have in life. Come back to the text with me. and So the crowd answered him, we have heard this, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And then they go, who is the Son of Man? Well, maybe they should have gone to Daniel 9. I don't know, but it's not in the law. Or Ezekiel, I think it's 37. Maybe they find out there, but it's not in the law. And Jesus said to them, doesn't answer their questions. I mean, have you ever had that happen in your life? You got, you know, like, you got, like you're, you're, you're just in turmoil. And, and you're praying, Lord, answer my question. And he doesn't answer, or he doesn't answer the way I want him to. What do we do? Jesus shows us in the times of darkness in our life to step towards him, and you'll step into the light, and you'll find your way out of it. Take a look at the text. It's right there. So, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Least darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. It's brilliant. I'm, you know, I'm married to a therapist. She's a great therapist. But this is like brilliant. Like don't stay... Like if you're you're troubled and in turmoil, don't camp out there. Step, walk into all the promises that are in the word of God and all the comfort and all the truth and all the victory that Jesus won on the cross. The answer when your life is in craziness, is to step into the promises in the presence of God because there is fullness of joy. There is life evermore. Come back to the text. While you have the light, believe in the light. In the midst of the turmoil, believe. In the midst of the questions, Walk in the light. In the midst of the unknown, step into what we do know. Is that for God so loved the world, he sent Jesus for you. While we have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And when Jesus had said these things, he finished his public ministry. He departed and he hid himself from them. We all go through these trials. We, Jesus, he's in Gethsemane. Not that our trials get to that level, but we all know We have experienced Gethsemane's in our own lives. We've all experienced turmoil of heart and questions. And my encouragement to you today is this. Step into what you do know, which is that God loves you, has a plan for your life, and that plan is good, and that plan is sweet. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 27, 13, and 14. David said this. He said, I I would have fainted. I would have stumbled. I would have fallen unless I believed, unless I had faith to believe the goodness of God in the land of the living. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait for the Lord. I'm going to wait in faith that he'll answer my prayer and show me the way forward. If you're here today and your world's been rocked, trust in what you do know, which is you have a good God who sent his son, who gave up his life. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Say yes to that. Say yes to that. You're on a good path. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table this morning.